Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. Hey guys, I'm Amanda. And I'm Jen. And And you're you're listening listening to Fathomless. fucking fabulous i'm so sleep deprived right now but we're 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 good yeah we're good it's okay i know i'm sorry i had you up super early and we were uh, up super late last night it's all right it's <clears throat> that's just been like the routine the past couple days so my body is starting to like feel it like, what are we doing great time for a three-day weekend yes most definitely tomorrow is gonna be a great reset day fucking nap all day yep I'm going to clean my house and do everything. And then the dog is going to get it all dirty again. Oh, yeah. It'll be okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we got a, you we got a just fun like, one. Right into yeah. It? Today we are going to be talking about uh, the what not even one of the biggest art thefts in history and one of the biggest mysteries to ever occur in Boston. Uh, so we're going to be talking about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. Crazy. Ba, ba, ba. There's a Netflix documentary. There is a Netflix documentary about it. I will uh, tell you guys the title at the end of it, or some at some point. I have it in. That's all my I notes heard about somewhere. it a few years ago. Yeah, yeah. I know when I mentioned it, Andrew was like, "Oh my god, I want to go there." Uh, so this case is still unsolved to this day, um, and like I said, it's considered to be the largest art heist in modern history. Um, before we get into the heist, I did want to give a little bit of history about the museum itself. For you know, for people who don't know, so the museum was constructed uh, between 1898 and 1901 by Isabella Stewart Gardner, uh, and she lived from 1840 to 1942. She was an American art collector, philanthropist, and just overall patron of the arts. Uh, she actually began collecting uh, seriously after she received a large inheritance from her father in 1891. She'd always had a love for like art and traveling, music and just all of that. And it just really kind of grew from there. Um, So over the years, she, you know, traveled Europe, traveled all over the world, uh, went to auctions, collected a bunch of very intricate, unique pieces and decided to display them in a museum. She designed the museum in the style of a 15th century Venetian palace. So it's very beautiful and very different from most of the other architecture in Boston. It doesn't have like a garden like It the has middle. a beautiful botanical courtyard garden like right in the middle of it. And um it's not really set up like a like most museums are. Like each room has its own like its own theme and it's very which I mean is that's a typical museum Yeah, each thing, room has but, its own like colors and yes, palette like the, and theme, yep. Yeah, it's very it her choices were very particular. Like you could tell she poured her heart and soul into that building. Uh, and it opened to the public in 1903. So that's just like a little blurb of history that I have about it. So now let's get into the actual uh, timeline of the heist itself. So it's Sunday, March 18th, 1990, just after midnight, and we're in Boston massachusetts uh so 
uh, most people, you know, on March 18th in Boston are either having their last call drink or stumbling out of a pub because it's St. Patrick's Day weekend. Uh, This was actually, um, you know, it's that this was the morning before the fair. Do it. Exactly. This was the perfect night to kind of like make any kind of heist, Uh, especially because the Gardner Museum was kind of over in like the back bay closer to Brookline area, like the eastern side of the city. And like pretty much every cop is going to be dealing with drunk people in selfie. So kind of a kind of a great plan. Yeah, all hands on deck. Exactly. For, uh St. Patrick's Day in Boston. Yeah. And it was, you know, it's midnight, so they're trying to, you know, get everyone up off the street so they can get ready for the parade in the morning. Uh and it this is around like 12:30 is when we have the first people who actually spotted the robbers. Uh they were leaving a St. Patrick uh, St. Patrick's St. Patrick's St. Patrick's Day party near the museum. Sorry guys. Oh shit. Um and they spotted two Boston police officers sitting in a parked car outside the museum. But what struck these like what struck this as odd to these people was the car that these police officers were sitting in was a Dodge Daytona which isn't a vehicle that they make anymore, but, like, I'm sure you, you remember, like, Dodge Neon. Yeah. Think of that, but, like, a hatchback, which is not a police car, a cop car at all, uh, like, at all. Um, inside the museum were two overnight guards, Rick Abbott, who at the time was 23, and Randy Heston, who was 25. And this is actually Randy's first night shift. He usually worked the day shift but was covering for a coworker who would called out. Which is kind of strange. And also just like a weird coincidence. coincidence. Randy definitely didn't have anything to do with it. Randy. Well, we'll get into Rick later. Okay. Uh, Rick is actually a very interesting character. And I would have loved to have had a beer with this guy. Uh, he played guitar in a band and was very much like your like classic like grungy hippie. Uh, and he uh, actually admitted to police and investigators that he often showed up to his night shifts straight from one of his shows with his band. Uh, so he was, you know, still drunk or stoned or tripping on acid from his, you know, his partying. And would just come into the museum and just work his shift. Yeah, late 80s, early 90s. Which, like, he was, I mean, I mean yeah. I wouldn't be able to stay awake for, how did he remember that he had to go into work? Like, how did he keep track of the time on acid? I don't know. But, I mean, he probably, the the acid definitely helped him stay awake. But, could you mention walking around a museum at night alone on acid? With another kid who's, like, your age. I don't don't, know. So, the guards, like, have, like, certain posts? So, what they had was there was a security, like, kiosk that was on the first floor. And then the usual process would be one guard would make a round while one stayed at the kiosk and would watch like the CCTV footage and the motion detectors and all that. And the other guard would like make the rounds, go through each room, just check on everything. And then they would swap. The other one would sit and then the next one would go and make a round. And they would just repeat that every hour. So uh, this is just, you know, typical night on the job. Uh, Rick was making his first patrol around midnight. Uh, when 
he stated that he noticed that several fire alarms started sounding in different rooms on different floors in the building. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, so he returned to the security room where the fire alarm control panel was, and it indicated that there was smoke detected in multiple rooms, which he didn't smell any smoke and didn't see any smoke. So he uh, proceeded to disable the fire panel to stop the alarms and then just went to go finish his rounds. Before completing his rounds, uh, Rick actually stopped at the side entrance of the museum and briefly opened the door and then shut it again without informing his partner, Randy, that he had done this. And this was picked up by the motion detectors that were on all of the doors and windows. They would actually like make like a notice of when uh, everything was open. Everything was open. And this was the 90s, so the motion detector system that they had was actually, it was it would literally print out a sheet that said, you know, 1201, like, side door opened, 1202, security room door so opened, 1203, like, movement think? in Dutch room. No, nobody was let in at that time, because it just briefly opened and then shut again. Did they have cameras, too, on this door? They had CCTV, so they, um, and, like, they don't see the footage because, unfortunately, the tape gets taken. Okay. But Rick does admit that he did open the door. According to Rick, he frequently would just pop outside and then pop back in real quick. And he did this to make, he said that he did this to make sure that the door was still locked. Um, but, however, like I said, this was around about, around about like 1230 when he did this. Um, and then he returned to the security desk about 1 a.m. And it was Randy's turn to take over patrol duties. At about 1.20, two men dressed as Boston police officers drove up to the side entrance of the museum. They parked their car, walked up to the door, and rang the buzzer, which connected them to the intercom at the security desk where Rick was sitting. The men explained that they were there investigating a disturbance and they must be admitted into the building immediately. Now, Rick was able to see the men on CCTV footage that was right outside the door. He saw that they were in cop uniforms and obviously assumed that they were officers. <clears throat> um, he didn't call in any disturbance and the fire alarms wouldn't have alerted the police station. Uh, but considering it was St. Patty's Day, he assumed maybe some, like, drunk people tried to, like, climb over the fence and, like, an, someone in the neighborhood had called it in or something. So, despite museum policy being to not allow anyone to enter the building after hours without proper identification, at 1.24 a.m., Rick admitted the men inside the building. Uh, and so when they come in, it's kind of like this little, like, foyer where they're just at the front. They just are at a counter facing the security desk and then there's like a, a locked door um and they approach the counter and they look at rick and they ask if anyone else is in the building so he radios randy to return to the front desk and at that point one of the officers says you look familiar to me i think we have a warrant out for you step out from behind the counter so rick complies and steps away from the security desk which was the only place in the entire building that had a panic button to alert the police. Does he think, do you think that he thinks he's actually talking to the police or you think he's in on it playing a, playing the role? Wait until we hear the whole story. Okay. Um, Because I'm not, I really don't know. I think possibly he may have played a part in it. 
possibly. He is very adamant that he did not. Uh, and we might never know. Uh, but when Rick came out of the security room and like opened the door to the kiosk, he was immediately thrown up against the wall, spread and handcuffed by these officers. At this point, Randy had returned and was also thrown up against the wall and handcuffed by these officers. Uh, once both of the guards were handcuffed, the officer stated, gentlemen, this is a robbery. And the thieves then wrapped duct tape around the guards' head and eyes, literally just like wrapped it around their Did head. Did they I'll both show you pictures say of the it. same story? Yeah. They both said that the two That's, officers said that? Yeah. Or said, gentlemen, this is a robbery. And then started wrapping their faces with duct tape and led them into the basement. Because so Randy walked, Randy walked in and just saw Rick being handcuffed. That was it. <clears throat> Everything that happened between like Rick and the officers is just what Rick said. Okay. Uh, the thieves then, like I said, they led them down to the basement where they handcuffed one of them to a steam pipe and the other to a workbench. They then took the guards' wallets, examined their IDs, and told the men. We know where you live. If you do not inform the authorities about this, you will receive a reward in one year. Which I thought was a very interesting thing. And both of the men said that that was told to them. Oh, my God. Did the they thieves, ever get a reward? They they did not okay. say anything. Sorry. So. Go on. I mean, would you, would you tell if you got a reward? I mean, they let that detail be known. So. Which is you why think the they police probably would be didn't. Like, I it, like you think the cops if they heard that they'd be like, okay we're gonna follow up with you in a year yeah or we're gonna track your mail for a year I don't know they may have anyway go on sorry uh, it's okay uh but it took the thieves less than fifteen minutes to enter the building and subdue both of the guards by then it was about one thirty five a.m. they had the entire museum to themselves they then spent an hour and thirty five minutes inside the museum which is. A long like, time. A long ass time. And this was like one of the big things that made the FBI kind of be like, what the hell? Because usually in a robbery, you're in and out. You want to get in and can. out as fast as you can. So they that's <clears throat> why they kind of believe that this was possibly an inside job because only somebody who felt comfortable would be there for an hour and 35 minutes. Or like the if someone inside is on it and helping them. Exactly. Like. Exactly. So their movements throughout the museum were recorded by the infrared motion detectors that were just all over the building. Uh, They went to the second floor and entered the Dutch room, uh, which is where they took pretty much some of the most coveted pieces of all. Uh, One of them is a stolen piece. It's one of, it's Rembrandt's, only seascape painting. Rembrandt is a very, very prolific Dutch painter. Um, and this painting is called The Storm on the Sea of Galilee. And it's a painting of like Christ on like a ship. It's I sent you uh, yeah, yeah, I sent I you one of them. I sent Jen a couple of the pictures so she could see the the pieces that were stolen. I'm a I am very much into art, so I love these paintings. They're they're really cool. Um so when they actually approached the paintings in the Dutch room, sensors went off. And these sensors were put in place to, like, alert, you know, patrons of the museum if they got too close to the artwork so that they wouldn't damage it. Um, they actually smashed this device. 
And the thieves then remove the paintings from the wall. Um, and this is was actually very confusing to the way they removed the paintings was very confusing to the museum like workers and the FBI agents. They removed the frames from the wall and then smashed the glass out of them and then cut the canvas from the stretcher and out of the frame. And I mean, this does kind of sound simple enough, like you could just cut it, roll it up and move on to the next one. However, these canvases were hundreds of years old and they weren't made like the canvases that we have today. It was layers and layers of like parchment, fabric, plant fibers that were basically all glued together. Sometimes it was several layers of like different pieces of canvas that had been ripped apart and stitched back together, basically, because like they they worked with what they had. You know, these were hundreds of years old. And then on top of that, there's several layers of very thick oil painting, like oil paint. So you couldn't roll it up. These paintings had to be laid flat or else they would be completely destroyed. Um, so this process of them taking the frames off the wall, putting them down, breaking the glass and cutting them out with box cutters, which is what they believed they would have done, would have been extremely time consuming. And which would is why also... they're in there for an hour and a half. Yeah. Um, what would they expect them to just take the frame and run? That's yeah. Yeah. Just take the frame and run. Um, that's usually what happened. Um, this also was because they could also damage the paintings like the the storm on the Sea of Galilee was brutally cut out of its frame and like pieces of it were like left. So like that. So it's that not even like it's of value, the, yeah, but that, it is. It's yeah. not the same as it was. Exactly. Um, so like normally when you're robbing something, you want to be like, you want to be in and out and keep it in the best condition. You're not going to take like an hour to fucking slice oil paintings out of frames, but that's what they did. Um, the thieves took another Rembrandt Rembrandt, uh, from the Dutch room entitled a lady and gentleman in black, uh, which is another one that I sent you, which is like a classic. Yeah. Yep. Um, I'll post pictures of all of these as well on our Instagram. Um, they also removed a, very large Rembrandt self-portrait oil painting from the wall, but ended up leaving it behind leaning against the cabinet. And authorities believe that it may have been too large of a painting and they were struggling to like take it out. So they just left it behind. The thieves instead uh, took a very small self-portrait etching made by Rembrandt that was on display beneath that very large portrait. And this self-portrait was literally no bigger than a postage stamp and held very little value compared to the other pieces in the room. Yet, for some reason, they removed it from the wall and then actually took the time to carefully unscrew the frame from this portrait and remove the etching from it. So they're smashing other things? So yeah, they're they're cutting oil paintings out with box cutters, but then removing an etching of Rembrandt that's like the size of a postage stamp, like ever so carefully from its frame. Which, which just kind of made no sense at all. Um, but regardless, they did it. Um, on the right side of the room, they removed a landscape with obelisk, I believe is how we say it, by Gauvert Link, um, and the concert by Johannes Vermeer. Uh, and those were also cut from their frames. The final piece that was taken from this room was a ancient Chinese goo, which is like a wine goblet, um, which also was was 
valuable, but not like significantly valuable. Um, well, one thief worked on removing these last pieces from the Dutch room. Another one made his way to a hallway that was dubbed the short gallery where they began attempting to uh, remove screws from a case that contained a Napoleonic, a Napoleonic flag. Um, but they apparently appeared to abandon this effort because the flag was left in its case, but they found broken screws in a like cigarette ashtray just outside of the museum that were from that encasing. However, they did remove the one piece of the flag that was not enclosed in the case, which was a gold finial eagle that stood on top of the flagpole, which also did not really hold a lot of value on its own. I feel like one of these guys was like smarter than the other. And, like, the other guy that that probably wasn't so smart. Or somebody wanted specific pieces and asked for these specific pieces. Yeah, I guess so. But I also, based on everything, FBI does believe that they were kind of, like, buffoonish criminals. They were were definitely not, like, you know, top tier. They got away with it. They did get away with it, but it was clear that this wasn't a common thing that they were often doing because it was very sloppily done. Um, yeah, to leave those screws outside. Yeah. And they also, like, they left fingerprints. Um, which so they have their fingerprints? They have fingerprints, but they don't know if they're museum workers, uh, patrons, okay. like, or them. Like, so that that's kind of the hard part about that. But they did, they, like, they, they left, like, a lot of stuff kind of everywhere um they left a frame of one of the paintings in the security guards room after they were done with like everything i'll get into that like a little bit later uh but in the short gallery they took five different Degas sketches which were all different like drawings of jockeys racing on horses and stuff like that um the final piece that was stolen that evening was a Manet painting entitled Chez uh, Tortoni from the Blue Room that was on the first floor. Now, get ready for this because this is fucking weird. The Blue Room was on the first floor and the infrared motion detectors picked up no movement on the first floor the entire time the thieves were in the building and there was no movement detected in the blue room except for the two times that Rick made his patrols at midnight. That was the only time that the infrared motion detectors detected somebody stepping into the blue room and then stepping out of it was the two passes that he made through there, which was right before he went to the side door and opened it and shut it. So it, it was a painting, you said? Stolen? It was a painting. Um, yeah. How was this one stolen? It, the, um, was it cut this, out? This was the painting that this, the frame of this painting was found in the chair in the security so guard's office. So they took it out of the frame. They didn't yes. cut it out with a They didn't cut cutter. it out. And the frame was found in, in the, the security, security guard's off. chair. Okay. And so that was before these guys. As far as they can tell, because there was no motion detected in the blue room after like 1224 a.m. And those thieves did not enter the building until 124 a.m. 
Um, like, <laughs> so. I mean, are these infrared sensors accurate? From what we can tell, they did have a like a security guy come and check the detectors after, and they were working properly. Um, did the robbers go on the first floor at all to steal anything, or is it everything no, was upstairs? Everything was on the second floor. Okay. Everything they took was on the second floor, except for that one painting out of the blue room. And like I said, there was no motion detected in there, like after twelve thirty. So. So he stole it. Maybe. I hate when you look at me like that. Dude's still out and about and like lives in Massachusetts. So I'm not Got gonna it. accuse him of anything. Got it. He might have a Manet painting in his home. He might not, you know? He might have just been a stone hippie who couldn't remember what like, you know, what was going on. But could also made out like a bandit. Who knows? We'll never know. Maybe we'll get Do a deathbed confession. Home? Not that I know of, no. Okay. Sorry. Go on. Um, Jesus Christ. The, so uh, the FBI did believe they did, because um, he is in my suspect list. I'll talk about it a little bit later. But the first FBI agents honestly thought that Rick was too incompetent to pull off something like this. Because, like, in their interviews, they were like, this is just some stone hippie who's, like, sitting in here on acid every day. There's no way that he pulled off an art heist like this and stole $500 million worth of work. But maybe Kaiser Sose'd them. You never know. What if it was just a coincidence that it got robbed that night? It could have been. That's the thing. Because it could have it was a perfect night for someone to try and do that. And there are several different suspects, but the leads haven't really gone anywhere. The biggest lead has been the uh the Sicilian Mafia, but we'll get into that in a minute. But like I said, um, the the last painting that was taken was taken out of the blue room um but there was no motion detected on the first like in the blue room um the security guards left the short gallery and actually went straight to the security director's office and they took the video cassette that contained pretty much all of the cctv footage and all of the evidence of their entrance um, they also took the data printout from the motion detecting equipment. But it was still recorded. Thankfully, there was a hard drive that still like recorded all of that. But they were still smart enough to pull that that printout sheet and take that with them. Um, and like I said, the frame of that Manet painting that was taken from the Blue Room was left at the security officer's desk. The thieves then began to remove the artwork from the museum using the side entrance door. Um, it was opened at 2.40 a.m. and then again for the last time at 2.45 a.m. Overall, 13 works of art were stolen and it is estimated between to be totaled between about 200 to now, today they say about $600 million. A lot of money. It's a lot of money. Oh, God. Well... I'm wondering if they got um, the whatever cut they were going to get for doing this because of how they were um, taken out of the frames. Because if I got a piece of work, 
uh, art piece and it was all fucked up like that, I'd be like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, from, you, you stole this and now it's all fucked up. Right. From what we can see or from what they could tell, the paintings were never sold again. They believe that they Black were. market or they, underground or something. So the FBI highly, their strong theory is that someone hired these people to take them that is a person like they're a personal art collector and they were like hey i know that there's some rembrandts there and like some other shit just go try and grab some things and unfortunately they picked some some shitty thieves to do it there's gonna kinda be botched a, the job there's gonna be a well-being check done on somebody like some old lady and yeah they're gonna have like this like fucking rembrandt painting in their living room yeah they're gonna find everything all together or something one day yeah or most of it or like someone's gonna like have like an estate sale and like clean out great grandma's attic and it's all gonna be there or like a storage unit sale yep or a um auction whatever they're called yeah you never know so the next morning the next guard came in for their shift and they realized that something was amiss pretty much immediately because they could not establish contact with anyone on the inside to gain admittance into the museum. So they called the security director who entered the building with his keys and found nobody at the watch desk before calling the police. Um, once he called the police, they immediately arrived and they searched the building and found Rick and Randy still bound and blindfolded with duct tape in the basement. So, pretty strange. Um, and when the police discovered this, obviously they started, you know, immediately conducting an investigation and the FBI was brought in immediately. immediately. Um, they kind of took control because they assumed that the artwork would likely cross state lines, which at that point, you know, Massachusetts would need it's, the assistance. Yeah. And it's so FBI. small that it's gone. Yeah. They could be out of, out of the state in an hour. Less yeah. Exactly. Out of Boston. Yeah. And on a highway through New York and that's it. Uh, and it was also the nineties. So they could have freaking like gotten on Logan and gotten on a plane. Yeah. Like, yep. Um, I'm sure well, someone would have noticed all that stuff with them and yeah, but. But, yeah, the FBI was there pretty much right away. There was actually also already a plethora of federal investigators in the city at the time because they were working on one of the largest mob busts in history. Uh, We'll talk about that a little bit later. But um, fingerprints and footprints were found at the scene. But like I said before, they couldn't really tell who they belonged to. Was it patrons who had been at the museum the day before? Was it the guards? Was it the thieves? They couldn't really tell. Um, So nothing could really be concluded from that. Um, And if you remember from our New Bedford Highway killer case, you know, fingerprinting was kind of in its, it was still like not super great back then. And it didn't even, we didn't even have a digital database in Massachusetts until 1992. That is insane to think about. So yeah, which is, freaking nuts but forensics were still in their infancy so the fbi did their best but they you know as sloppy as these guys were they still didn't leave enough of their own physical dna behind um investigators questioned the guards who both described the men well enough to have sketches made but honestly the description that they gave sounds like literally any white dude that you could find in boston at that time um i'll i'll 
put the pictures up to and like the sketch pictures they look like it's just just like two basic guy just two basic ass dudes um and rick abbott actually said that he thought that the thieves were wearing fake mustaches uh because he said that they looked and this is a quote unnaturally greasy which that's just gross it's just unnaturally greasy. Would a fake just, like, mustache be greasy? I I would think not, which makes me really concerned as to why it was. Um, <laughs> but the guards um, also questioned the witnesses on the on the street, and between all um, well, not the guards, but the officers between the guards and the witnesses on the street, um, they got this description. There was one thief who was about five foot nine, maybe five foot ten in his late thirties, with a medium build, dark hair, and gold rim glasses. Another guy was about six feet, maybe six foot one, in his early thirties, the heavier build and dark hair. So like two white dudes in their thirties between five, nine, and six foot with dark hair. That's not a lot to go on. Yeah. And, and that could also be like, literally anybody in Boston. If someone's like, like, oh, describe them to me. I'd be like, oh, this person, they they have like, I don't know. How do you describe what someone looks like to somebody unless they have like distinctive features? Yeah. It's just like, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it'd be hard. Average height, brown hair. Like, that's how I describe people. Like, exactly. I wouldn't. But yeah, it they do just, it looked like. Just two basic white dudes. So that really didn't help their investigation at all because, of course, they're going to get a million calls in, but they're all going to lead to pretty much nowhere. And that's exactly what happened. So we're going to dive into the list of suspects that they have, but pretty much all of them came up as dead ends. There's also a lot more suspects than what we're going to go into. Um, but you'll, you guys can, you know, watch the documentary on Netflix and they go into a lot of it. Uh, but let's get started with uh, one of the first suspects that investigators were suspicious of right away. Um, and everyone still kind of believes that he was involved in it. And that is Rick Abbott. So, the security guard. Um, the museum policy, like I had said, was to never open that side door after hours, especially to nobody that didn't have any kind of proper identification. Um, and just not open them at all. Uh, yet, about 15 to 20 minutes prior to the thief's arrival, the motion detectors caught Rick opening the door and briefly closing it while he was making his rounds. And reminder, all the CCTV footage was stolen by the thieves. So who's to say that Rick didn't open that door to, like, signal to somebody and then close it and then go tell Randy, hey, go make your rounds, <clears throat> man. And then, yeah, and it's funny that they like didn't come immediately after. Like they waited. Yeah, it like, was like a little 15, bit 20 minutes to meet. Yeah, or me like maybe he like slipped that out of the side door, and that that's, was their signal. The that's painting. what I think is that, that he slipped that painting out. That was like the signal of like, hey, like I should have that in my notes later. Like hey, once the you coast s- is clear, yeah, like, we can do it tonight or something. Like once you see that painting out there, grab it, and then you can come in. So that is a theory, like a big, that's a big Reddit theory, obviously. Everyone on Reddit thinks that Rick was in on this, and he's got, like, secretly got, like, millions of paintings in his basement. As, or he like, just got money, for, like, a cut of money for it. Yeah. But, I mean, police did, you know. Because, like, sorry um, to cut you off, but, like, I feel like people kind of, I mean, they must have observed the museum or been inside job or yeah. 
type thing. And they saw this guy. The museum before. Yeah, and they probably saw the security guard before and was like, he just looks like a fucking drunk partier. Yeah, like we could guy. give this we, dude like a couple hundred bucks and get him to, he was, you know. He could have been like, not like a weak link, but like somebody yeah. that was like vulnerable enough to be like, oh yeah, I'd do it for the money. Exactly. Someone who was young enough and like wanted to, and like, you know, wanted to, you know, he wanted to make it big as like a band. He didn't want to fucking work at the museum forever. So definitely could have been that. Somebody who could have just, you know, been like, hey. I'll give you like five, six hundred bucks if you just, you know, go along with what we're going to do next weekend and just had it happen. But Rick is very adamant that that's not the case. Um, Police did question him. They asked why he had opened that door. And like I said before, Rick had stated that he frequently did that to check that it was locked. Uh, But according to museum officials, um, there was never really often alert that that door the side door was opening on the overnight shift before because if there was that would have caused them to be kind of concerned and they would have started questioning rick so according to museum officials that door was never opened on like an overnight shift which is ever before ever before is what they said rick says that he did it all the time museum officials say that they don't they don't know if it's if it is like, if it actually happened or not. Yeah. Um. There's also the issue of the Manet painting, um, the Shea Tortoni painting that was removed from the Blue Room. Uh, like I said before, this painting was in a gallery on the first floor, and all of the other paintings were taken from the second floor, the Dutch Room, and the Short Gallery. Now, the only motion that was detected in that blue room was the two passes that Rick made around midnight. Um, like I said, they checked the detect um, the motion detecting system, but it appeared to be working correctly. So I think he may have stolen that. Um, I do actually also want to mention a fun little fun little fact about Rick. Um, we um, the day after the invest like after the robbery. Um, even though police are conducting this huge investigation and he, you know, had just been kidnapped basically and shoved in a basement during an art heist, he left the state and went to Connecticut. And when police asked why he left the state, he simply said, well, I had Grateful Dead tickets in Hartford and I wasn't going to miss it. I mean, if it was like the Taylor Swift (laughs) concert, same. Oh, yeah. Grateful Dead was their Taylor Swift. Except not really. Someone's gonna punch me for saying that. I'm so sorry. Hey, it's it's not our fault that Taylor Swift is the music industry. But just saying. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Is what it is, guys. <laughs> so um in 2015, um, FBI actually released a security video from the museum that was from the night before. And it showed Rick admitting a unidentified man into the museum and they conversed at the security desk for a minute and then the man left. Uh, when this was shown to Rick, he said that he didn't recall the incident at all. But like I said, this dude showed up to work basically tripping on acid every day. Um, so the FBI requested the public's assistance in helping. Then several former museum guards came forward and identified the un- like unidentified male 
as the museum's deputy security chief. Okay. So, so he worked there. So he worked there. But it's weird that the FBI had this security footage and held it until 2015. Yeah. And then released it and were like, oh, what's this? Just very, I yeah. thought it was very odd. Um, But Rick is adamant to this day that he had nothing to do with the burglary. Um, He says that in the Netflix series too. Though it does, the Netflix series definitely kind of leans into that. He had something to do with uh-huh. it. Um, I'm not super convinced. Maybe, maybe he got slipped like a couple hundred bucks and was told, you know, just like be, you know, a little extra lazy on that night. I could maybe see that happening. Dude was 23. 23 year old Amando probably would have done the same kind of shit. You know, I was a peasant. You wouldn't like, like, I think you were working at like Burger King. I was working maybe at Burger at that King. Time. So, yeah. I mean, I feel like if the right person with the right yeah. deal came up to you yeah. and you're like, hey, like overnight thing, you'd be like, fuck BK. I'm yeah. going to do it. I definitely would have. So, you know, 31 year old Amanda. Rick, has, we don't blame you if you has did a it. better conscience now. <laughs> <laughs> she would never. No, I would not. Um, so, there, um, another suspect that came up, which I'm sure won't come as a surprise to you, was Whitey Bulger. Um, now, I'm sure that, you know, no one in New England is surprised about that. Um, they were, you know, in the 1990s, it was a wicked chaotic time in Boston, especially with organized crime. Um, and when it came to James Whitey Bulger, he was, you know, one of the big kingpins in the area. He was known for, uh, I mean, for those of you who aren't from Boston, was known for leading the notorious uh, and ruthless Winter Hill Gang, which was named after the Somerville neighborhood that they kind of came from. Uh, this was predominantly an Irish-American gang, but they did have a small faction of Italian-Americans as well. Uh, one of their most well-known heinous acts was the Anti-Bussing Acts. Um, this was in, uh, like, late August, early September of 1974 uh, when Whitey Bulger and and an accomplice reportedly set fire to an elementary school in order to intimidate a U.S. District Court judge um, over his mandated plan to desegregate schools in the city of Boston. Were the kids, like, in the building when he set it on fire? I actually did not look into that any further okay. uh, but we'll probably do like a whitey bulger episode that's and, a good idea and we'll we'll go into that further okay um and then a year later they also threw a Molotov cocktail into the uh home that was the birthplace of john f kennedy in brookline and this was a retaliation at senator ted kennedy's vocal support of boston school desegregation okay so he's so. super ever Super great guy. Um, he was also um, originally suspected to be involved with the murder of Ruth Marie Terry, also known as the Lady in the Dunes, before she had been identified in 2022. Obviously, now we know that that was not the case. Um, have we heard anything about her case? There, they have a, they have like a, a, a name of what who they think the ex did it, but like they're all they're all gone now, yeah. so they've all passed. So we're probably really never nothing. gonna move forward with it. 
but yeah, there's really, there's, you know, we can't get any more confessions or information because all the people who would have been around at that time have left this earth. So there's no really way to get any I more I mean, info. maybe not. She was, what, in her 20s? Yeah. But from and what I saw, I know. That was 50 like, years he's, ago. He's dead. Yeah. And so, like, who I feel knows like there's somebody alive that might know something. It's not Possibly. completely impossible. Possibly. Like the boy in the box. You never know. But, um, so the FBI knew that Whitey had a very close relationship with Boston PD, which would have made it easy for him to get Boston PD uniforms. Uh, he was also known to have connections with the IRA, which is the Irish Republican Army. I don't know if you know what that is. Um, it is a paramilitary faction in Ireland. So they, you know, look, act, like military, but they are not like government funded military. It's a bunch of dudes with a bunch of guns. Bunch of dudes that want to wear a cool uniform. Yeah, pretty much. Cool gun. Yeah, pretty much. Without the commitment. It's like um Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Uh so the IRA was actually known to uh take works of art and other like valuable things and kind of basically auction them off on the black market as a way to raise funds for weapons. And the IRA did have a lot of connections in Massachusetts as well. Um, there was actually a boat called the Valhalla that got, um, that was from Gloucester, Mass, that was seized in Ireland. And it had like hundreds and hundreds of weapons on it that the IRA was smuggling back and forth from the U.S. to Ireland on these fishing boats. So they had some connection around here. And, you know, Whitey is part of the Irish mob. So it wouldn't be, you know, wouldn't be too far-fetched to believe that he may have done this and used it as a trade-off with the IRA to stay in good graces and all. So, you know, do like a little weapons trade of some kind, you know, make some money. However, when he was confronted about the museum theft, Whitey was actually offended. Because uh, this robbery had happened in his neighborhood, which was something that he would have not done. Because that would be disrespectful to rob, like, a business in your own neighborhood that yep. you're supposed to be protecting. Yep. So he denied any involvement and actually dispatched his own agents to help investigate and identify the culprits as a way to pay tribute to the museum. All right. So suspect turned helper. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, like, also on top of the museum being in his neighborhood, um, shit was fucking hot in Boston at that time. Like I had said, there was already feds all over the city. They were actually working on a, with a task force to completely wipe out the Sicilian mafia, also known as La Cosa Nostra, which means this thing of ours. Um, now the Sicilians had ruled the North End for pretty much since Italian immigrants came to Boston. Um, and they were, you know, wreaking havoc all over the city. So the feds were adamant that they were going to dismantle them from top to bottom. Uh, and on March 26, 1990, just a few days after the robbery, um, Italian mob boss Raymond Pat- um, Patricia, I think is how you say it. Could be wrong. Um, but... He and 20 other family members and associates were indicted on charges of racketeering, extortion, narcotics, gambling, and murder. 
And this was one of the largest organized crime busts in United States history. So I thought that was kind of interesting that it happened literally within days. And even though that happened, everyone in the city was still talking about the robbery. Yeah, so didn't really shadow over that yeah. news. Because that, I mean, that's freaking huge. Exactly. But Whitey, who, like I said, had a very close relationship with Boston PD, probably had a hunch that some shit was going down and, like, knew that things were getting hot with the Fed. Fed. So at that time, he was kind of really lying low and just kind of flying under the radar. So he ultimately ended up being ruled out as a suspect. But course you got to bring whitey into it if it's in boston uh another suspect was brian mcdevitt brian mcdevitt was a con man from boston who had tried to rob the hyde collection in glen falls new york which was another collection of art uh, and this happened in 1981 he dressed up as a fedex driver carried handcuffs and duct tape and planned to steal a rembrandt same kind of painting as before um He was also known as a flag aficionado uh, and fit the description of the larger robber, except for the fact that he had thinning red hair. He did not have dark hair. But if they thought that maybe they were wearing fake mustaches, could have been wearing like a wig too, possibly. Uh, However, the FBI interviewed him in late 1990, but he denied any involvement. Uh, He did refuse to take polygraph test, but the FBI did take his fingerprints that they had in the system and matched it against the ones that they had taken from the crime scene, and nothing nothing matched. So, they still didn't really have anything. Then, there was a letter sent to the museum in 1994. This letter was uh, written directly to the museum director, Anne Hawley. Uh, it was an anonymous letter from someone who claimed to be attempting to negotiate the return of the artwork. And the writer explained that they were a third-party negotiator that did not know the identity of the thieves. They went on to explain that the artwork was stolen to reduce a prison sentence, but the opportunity had passed and there was no longer a motive to keep the artwork, so they wanted to negotiate it for a return. The writer explained that the artwork was being held in a non-common law country and under controlled climate conditions. They were trying to state that it was in a state, in a safe place, but in a place that the FBI would not be able to get to it, essentially. Um, Like, they wouldn't have jurisdiction to go get, like, get a search warrant and go grab it. Um, So they wanted immunity for themselves and all others involved and $2.6 million for the return of the artwork uh, that would be sent to an offshore bank account at the exact same time that the art was handed over. Uh, The letter also stated that if the museum was interested in this negotiation, that they should print a coded message in the Boston Globe. And they also gave key details about the robbery that had not been released to the public by the FBI. So do we know these details at all? It did not say. Oh, of course. It just said key details that had not been released. So they still haven't been released. Um, Museum was very interested in this negotiation and reached out to the FBI, who were also interested, and quickly reached out to the Boston Globe. A coded message was printed on May 1st, 1994, in an edition of the Boston Globe. The museum then received a second letter a few days later, in which the writer acknowledged the museum was interested in negotiating, but that they had become fearful of what they perceived was a massive investigation by federal and state authorities, 
to determine their identity. The writer explained that they needed time to evaluate their options, but unfortunately, they never wrote the museum ever again. And they were never able to find where these letters came from. They weren't able to trace that back? Nope. So some other suspects include, um, you know, one that the police really knew very well at the time, which was the Sicilian Mafia. And I could spend about three and a half hours getting into the Sicilian Mafia and their possible role in the heist. But this is already a pretty long episode. Um, so if you really want to know about that, I urge you to go watch the Netflix documentary. This is a robbery, the world's biggest art heist. Um, it's just a lot. There's so many family members and it's so many fucking names to remember and like bosses and underbosses. And like, there was just a lot of, you know, this one guy and his cousin, you know, got these ones and then moved it to their mother's house. and like just very there's some very weird weird things but essentially someone may have seen some of these paintings in the home of someone who was a very big boss in the Sicilian mafia and in I want to say it was like early 2000s FBI thought that they had a very strong lead but it led to like nowhere unfortunately of course it did. Um, the, uh, like I said, the Netflix documentary goes way more into it, but I was already, it was like 3 a.m. when I was finished typing out these notes and I was already on like a deep dive into the Sicilian mafia. And I was like, I can't, I can't. It's going to be too long of an episode. Yeah. Too long. I got to rein it in. Uh, but to this day, none of these 13 artworks have ever been found or recovered. Uh, and this is still an open investigation. There is a $10 million reward to anyone with information leading to the recovery of the artwork. Uh, the most valuable uh, piece of work that was taken was taken from the Dutch room. Uh, and the biggest one of that was the painting The Concert by Dutch painter Johannes Vermeer. Uh, it is one of only 34 paintings ever attributed to him. And this painting alone accounts for pretty much half of the theft's overall value painting was estimated in 2015 to be worth 250 million dollars and experts believe to this day that this is the most valuable object ever stolen in the world oh my god i thought that was that is crazy, crazy. wasn't the mona lisa stolen one time yeah someone tried to steal it they tried or they did i think they tried maybe i don't know i don't know could be a myth uh, but to this day, the empty gold frames still sit on the walls of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. You can go visit it today. Tickets are like only 20 bucks a piece and it's open to the public Monday through Friday. Or I think Monday through Saturday. Um, and anyone with information about the artwork is urged to call the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI or 1-800-225-5324. Or you can call the Gardner Museum directly at 617-566-1401. Holy moly. Is it. Now we got to go to this museum. We do. We do. 
This was a really interesting one. I'm glad that we covered this. Very, Maybe very crazy you can do case. the Sicilian Mafia for another like, oh, yeah. history I'd love, with Amanda. I'd love to do like a like a little Boston Mafia dive. Also a Rhode Island Mafia dive because that is a... Uh, That's a whole other thing. Oh, yeah. Very crooked. Wow. Very crooked. Wow. The mob like ran Rhode Island for years. Crazy. Which is just nuts. Crazy. They still pretty much do. According to my dad. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, if Steve Cobb said it, then it must be absolutely, absolutely right. Must be true. Just like if it's on Facebook, one hundred percent true. Oh, absolutely. Automatically. If it's on Wikipedia, true. Yeah. Oh, so true. Pure <sighs> facts. All right. Well, I think we should just gonna end it right there, end guys. It right there. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We hope you enjoyed our little uh our little Heist episodes, Pilot robberies, yeah. episodes after a super depressing month. And yeah, so That's it. stay spooky, stay scary, and stay safe. Bye. Bye. Bye.